Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Back everyone to the crux. Welcome back, Gary. Hey, Mike. How are you feeling? Um, I'm getting there. This is uh, this COVID thing. By the way, thank you to everyone who sent me notes and and get well wishes. Uh, I'm back on my feet and happy to be here with Mike and talking to all of you. Yeah. So so not only have 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 we uh, gone through weeks of COVID nineteen with Gary, but We've also been on a bit of a hiatus and a lot has happened. A lot has happened. Everything from, you know, all the insurrection in Washington to uh, the changing of the guard in Washington, just lots of things going on all across the planet. Boy, has it been Uh, that long, Mike? Wow. It has. It has. And now we're kind of in the polar vortex and things are very, very cold. Uh, here in North America, but we have one warm spot. We have uh, our newest BU grad student and Crux editor, Christopher. Chris, welcome to the team. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm excited to work with everyone and continue working on the Crux. Yeah, and, 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 and Chris, tell people where you're from. So I'm originally from Westfield, New Jersey, but I, I moved up to Boston in the summer and I've been taking classes at BU now. I'm in my second semester of getting my master's in public relations. Terrific, terrific. We, we also have a, a, a great guest today, the founder and executive director of the Aspen Institute's uh, Business and Society Program, Judy Samuelson, and the author of a very timely book, uh, The Six New Rules of Business, Creating Value in a Changing World. But before our interview with Judy, first the news. You know, we've had a lot. Uh, there was yeah. there was Christmas, New Year's, the inauguration of, uh, of of President Joe Biden, the impeachment of the former President Donald Trump, an insurrection at the Capitol, and in a strike for diversity, the terrorist watch list now includes angry white people. By the way, mm-hmm. and now, of course, President Trump may have to face or is in the process of facing the consequences of the U.S. Senate. But it seems as though there may be consequences for those who worked in communications for President Trump as as well. And there was an argument made a a week or two ago by Randall Lane, the Forbes magazine editor and chief content officer of Forbes Media, in an opinion piece for Forbes saying that, you know, the president's spokespeople, that's President Donald Trump's spokespeople like Sean Spicer to Sarah Huckabee and Kellyanne Conway and, and, and Kaylee McEnany have, in, these are his words, have debased themselves. Mm-hmm. And as a consequence, companies shouldn't let the chronic liars cash in on their dishonesty. Let it be known to the business world, hire any of Trump's fellow fabulous above and Forbes will assume that everything your company or firm talks about is a lie. Is Randall Lane right, Gary? Should there be a truth reckoning? Should spokespeople for politicians who lie be banned from media relations jobs? You know, I'm going to give a political answer and the answer is no and yes. 
<laughs> in this sense, I think uh, I think creating blacklists for for uh, people is dangerous. So I, I would just start there, and, and clearly there's historical precedent for that, and who who develops the list and and who controls it. At the same time, I, I think you make individual decisions about each of these people, and each of the decisions I would make if I were in a hiring situation would be to agree with him. I would not hire them. In communications, your credibility is really all you've got, right? And, and you know, Mike and I, we're big members or have been members of PAGE for a long time. Tell the truth is one of our principles. Clearly, these folks did not. And clearly, the impacts of those mistruths and those lies, I guess is a better way to say it, have had significant negative impact, have hurt the country, as evidenced by the big lie, as it's now referenced, that led to the insurrection on January 6th at the Capitol. So blacklists know these folks individually and on a judgmental basis, absolutely. Yeah, I, I do think you need to, to not generalize, be to the specific but I, I do think, you know, people pay communicators to be purveyors of fact-based information. And I think that with that, there are great risks in people who go to work for political figures and are put in a position and agree to be put into a position where they, they know, knowingly are, are fabricating the information that they're trafficking in. You and I both worked as uh, as, as uh, press secretaries yep. to political figures, and you know, it, I was always very careful about articulating things maybe that I felt that were uncomfortable for me individually, is characterizing it as the the senator's opinion. Right. Or the senator said this, or the the senator believes that, especially on on issues where uh, where I disagreed, because my sensibility was is that I was hired not to offer my opinion. I was hired to convey, you know, what my client in this case, a United States senator, was trying to convey to their constituency or or to the broader public. And and I completely agree. And and you know you think back, Mike. It's you think back to the first day of the or the first week of the Trump administration, and Sean Spicer arguing uh, against demonstrable fact about the size of the. <laughs> you were going to go there, <laughs> but no. It's, but it's like, but, it's like you, you can take pictures from previous inaugurations and yeah. compare them, and it's like. Okay, night and day. <laughs> yeah. And look, you know, as you say, we both were in politics and, and you do try to advance the cause of the person you're working for and the thinking. But if <laughs> you, you just you just sacrifice, you're not doing them any favors. Yeah. When you do that, when when you try to talk to only half of the country, which is right. what happened here. And so Look, but 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 I guess the upside is you can you can find yourself on Dancing with the Stars. Yeah, and and I was going to say, and you'll we'll get a readout on this in Arkansas, where Sarah um, Huckabee Sanders is running for governor, 
So yeah, light, um, following in dad's footsteps. Yeah, exactly. Let's turn to the business world a little bit and, and, and more like the, the world of, of, of uh, shares and, and uh, day trading. <laughs> you know, uh, we had this event, you know, uh, with GameStop, where all of a sudden its shares had been trading, you know, kind of from December 1 until like the middle of January in kind of a $15 to $20 a share range. And then all of a sudden on January 28th, the stock opens up at over $468 a share. Damn, I and, wish I yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and this began when, you know, when some Wall Street hedge funds at first announced, you know, hedging or, or taking, you know, shorting the stock, if you will. That is making a bet that the stock would go down over time. And then some armchair investors, these day traders, if you will, yeah. on, Re on Reddit's Wall Street Bets channel began encouraging one another. And I don't know if you've ever seen this site, but it's pretty crazy. Yeah, I it, looked it, at it after it, this, yeah. It almost looks like kids playing a game online. Yeah. And, and But here they are, they're sending messages to each other around GameStop shares and, and, and really kind of pushing it into orbit. Put another way, a group of guys on Reddit figured a way to get rich off of GameStop or GameStop stock by bankrupting a bunch of traditional hedge funds. <laughs> so this was made all the more easier by sites like Robinhood, which enable small investors now to buy fractional shares. So you can buy like a one thirty second of yeah. GE. So that's really changed the game. And, and the fees of these, of, of these online tools like Robinhood are much lower than traditional stock brokerage firm fees. So question, has the democratization of the stock market gone too far? And two, did GameStop have an obligation to tell the market that nothing had really changed in its fundamentals from December 1 to today when the stock started going crazy? And, and my answer is yes and yes. I, I, I think, Mike, when you look at this, it's, look, having access to markets is a good thing. Mm -hmm. You want to provide that access. At the same time, however, you have to provide some sense of education about the risk and about the fundamentals of the market. And, and clearly fundamentals were not at play here relating to GameStop. Nothing had changed uh, materially for that stock, for that company. And look, this has real consequences. Um, oh, you have to admire the little slap at the at, at, at those hedge funds guys. Oh, right? totally. Look, I, I, <laughs> I shed no tears for the shorts. You know, <laughs> believe me. After <laughs> after my time at GE, but look, he, I, I read a story where a young man took his own life because he thought he had lost a significant amount of money on on mm. Robinhood. Yeah. So yeah. so democratization is a good thing, but it's got to be paired with education. Yeah. And, and I just don't think that that is happening. Well, it's also interesting, the tale about Robinhood itself, right? Yeah. Because, because Robinhood even had to suspend its platform because it didn't have enough in capital reserves, which is required by law, to support its trading levels. Right. You know, so one even wonders, did Robinhood, you know, have an obligation to communicate its financial standing, you know, even ahead of being in this position where 
it had to go out and secure additional funds in order to back up the trading levels. Yeah, and and to your uh, completely and your second question about GameStop, yes. Yeah. You know, I I, I just if you're going to you you can't communicate only when things good things are happening to you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and <laughs> and and if you want to earn trust and and sustain your business and I uh, you know, I I think it was incumbent on them to really point point out exactly what you said. Nothing fundamentally had changed about that company financially yeah. from a performance standpoint, from a prospective performance standpoint that merited yeah. what was going on with their stock yeah. price. Yeah, well, and I think there are a number of good things that are happening. I do think that allowing for more fractionalized shares yes. is probably a good thing, gets more people into the market. But just like uh, the traditional markets, I mean, it, you need some bumper pads here. Yeah, and, and uh, Mike, some... by the way, to your point, you know, we some people like to point to the health of the stock market as an indicator of economic mm-hmm. prosperity or, or health in this country. And when it's clear that almost half of the shares in this country are owned by very few people, I mean, like count them on one hand. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so democratization and in, in getting uh, more people involved in educated investment, investing is a good thing. Yeah. So we're going to talk to Judy Samuelson in a moment. And, and, and clearly, you know, a lot of her career has been in tracking the relationship between business and society. And one of the fallouts from the Capitol Hill insurrection on, on January 6th was that a, a number of U.S. companies decided to put their political giving and their political action committees or PACs on hold. Some say they're even revisiting their purpose and changing the terms under which they will support candidates, even adding, you know, words like they will only support candidates that are supportive of the rule of law and those who support democratic institutions. Some like Morgan Stanley and Dow are suspending all PAC contributions to members of Congress who did not vote to certify the results of the Electoral College. And Hallmark went so, so Midwestern company, Hallmark, went so far as to request the return of campaign contributions its PAC made to members who led the charge against certifying the election, including one senator in their own backyard, Josh Hawley. Is this reaction from corporate America warranted one? And how will it impact businesses that seemingly need the support of a number of these legislators on key issues going forward? Well, it is warranted specific to the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th. I don't know how you could support, again, using the phrase big lie, people who supported the big lie about the election that caused the insurrection. There's direct cause and effect there. And of course, that's being debated in the Senate as it pertains to the president now. So uh, I don't know how you could be a purposeful company and continue to support those politicians. But the most important thing, Mike, here is that I was right. (laughs) (laughs) How often do you say that to Bart? Exactly, not very often. (laughs) So as I lay in bed and with COVID and and thought about this, you know, that was my takeaway, damn it. And (laughs) at 
and that you know when the BRT came out with its stakeholder capitalism and some of these other things going on, I sort of felt like they were taking on the easy issues. And as you say, political contributions are hugely complex. Yeah. And you, particularly for multi-business companies, B2B companies, and who you support and for what reason, hmm. companies need to really take a hard look at those because you may support someone like a Mitch McConnell because he's supportive of your appliance business in Kentucky, uh-huh. but he is not supportive of some things relating to workers' rights or other issues right. that, that are fundamentally important to you. So. Uh, I just think this is the most, these actions are the most, I say, aggressive stakeholder capitalism actions that I've seen. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and, and clearly it's, it's, I do think it's a time to pull back a time to reassess, yes. you know, the events on January 6th, uh, literally as someone who spent his early career working on Capitol Hill, it made me want to cry. Yes. When things that you fundamentally believe in are, are, are being destroyed right before your eyes. It, it, it's hard to feel comfortable about where we sit and the divisive nature of, of, of politics, of society. And I tend to be an optimist, but January 6th tested my optimism. Yes, completely agree. I don't think, Mike, I've been as mad or angry. That's probably a bad reaction about something mm-hmm. that happened in our country. George Floyd certainly... But this one, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just from a pure, as you say, emotional mm-hmm. reaction was tough to watch. Well, let's go to our guest. Uh, Judy Samuelson is a, a bona fide optimist about yes. the relationship of business and society and where that's going. So on to the interview. How are you doing? I'm doing well, and and welcome to the crux. We've we've been on hiatus for a while, yeah. but it's it's good to be back uh, at the microphone and, and talking with you. And we've got a great guest today, absolutely on the podcast, Judy Samuelson, who has a, a new book out, "The Six New Rules of Business: Creating Real Value in a Changing World." And we're going to talk to Judy about those rules, the changing role of business and society, and why CEOs should be paid less. So that should be an interesting topic. (laughs) I won't Uh, take that to my boss. (laughs) Yeah. So let me give you a little bit bit of background here. So while the Business Roundtable last year espoused a broader stakeholder approach to capitalism, Judy has been working toward that goal for more than two decades. She's the executive director of the Aspen Institute for Business and Society Program, which she founded in 1998. And in that role, Judy has been leading an effort to disrupt Milton Friedman's 50-year-old narrative on the purpose of business and to rethink topics such as executive pay, which is always, as Mike says, a popular topic to talk about with (laughs) CEOs. Judy uh, has worked in legislative affairs in California, in banking in New York's and in New York's Garment Center, and at the Ford Foundation. 
So Judy, welcome to the crux. Thanks, it's great to be here. Look forward to this conversation. So this is a perfect book for our audience, for not only communicators sort of wrestling with this changes that we're seeing in expectations for business, but for business leaders themselves. But I want to start with the Business and Society Program at Aspen. Give us some background on it, and what are your goals there? Aspen's a big tent. The Business and Society Program is one of dozens of programs that are housed at the Institute. The kind of through line of the Aspen Institute is about leadership development and dialogue, addressing complex problems, bringing different people to the table, equipping people with the skills to drive change within institutions. And my brief, the brief of my colleagues and I in the Business and Society Program, is really about aligning business decision-making with the long-term health of society. So we, we do that through lots of different strategies, including intense kind of conversation, intentional conversations, fellowship programs, networks, essentially to give the opportunity for people to step back, reflect, and build the courage and conviction to lead with their values and to drive change from within these institutions. Business is an incredibly important part of the puzzle. So we've heard a lot about that recently from, from business, as I said, but you've been talking about it for more than 20 years and doing something about it. So how far, let me ask this question, sort of let's set the stage of where we are. How far have we come since 1970 and, and Friedman's declaration that the business of business is business. How far along, in other words, are we on the continuum toward true stakeholder capitalism? Well, in some ways, it's been kind of a, a round trip. You know, Friedman's article landed exactly 50 years ago. It was picked up in fairly short order by scholars to whom it appealed for a few reasons, but one of them was that it's a, it's a straightforward way of measuring business success. You know, you don't have to go down a lot of side alleys. You, you can essentially, with the mantra that this is about long-term value creation, you can state and you can believe that if you stay focused on shareholder value over the long-term, that, you know, these, the kind of various ways in which business needs to operate in order to succeed, they start to collide and, and right. businesses can, mm -hmm. can see the picture in a different way. Of course, it just hasn't worked out that way. Instead, we reinforced stock as the basis of CEO pay. That's had its own unintended consequences. Finance classrooms have reverted to a single objective function as if these incredibly complex <laughs> organizations with thousands and hundreds of thousands of employees operating in dozens or hundreds of countries around the globe can manage to one function or don't have, have the luxury to do that. So, of course, it's much more complex than that. You know, we've, we've come a long ways in classrooms, as, although we've got a ways to go in finance classrooms, and we've come a long ways in boardrooms, and now it's about aligning intentions and operations. Yeah, I, this is Mike. Welcome, Judy. What, what surprises me is that it's taken so long in some respects in, in the sense that, you know, in accounting, financial accounting, you always had the going concern concept right? And then if, if you have the going concern concept, you have this notion that you live to play another day. And it seemed like Friedman was really more locked in that year to year, but sustainability of corporations themselves require in, in a wider view. And that's why I love what you've done here. But I'm really curious as, as, you, as you look at 
businesses today and you look at the heightened expectations that society and the rest of us have of these companies and, and the type of leadership that is, is almost being demanded of, of some of our largest companies globally. Let me ask you two questions. One, is business ready to lead? And two, should it? Oh, both interesting questions. Is it ready to lead? Well, that's about leaders, right? Business is nothing but a, a you know, business corporations are designed to do things you can't do by yourself or in just within the bounds of what your family can afford or organize. So corporations have higher goals, have always been thus. It's always been a complex stance. I think we're seeing a change in leadership. And I think coming out of COVID, we're going to see a more rapid change. I think there's a lot of executives who are seeing through these difficult times, but I think we'll see turnover both in the C-suite and on boards. And I think the generation of leaders that is coming in knows that the job of the CEO has changed profoundly and that the CEO today, our, our partners at Corn Ferry on, on working on CEO pay, remind us that their leader, their research is clear on this, that CEOs today are leading, they're really leading communities of interest, communities yeah. and mm -hmm. communities of interest and entire ecosystems. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we need a different kind of leader. And I think we're seeing that emerge in companies. And as for whether or not business should engage here, you know, I think it's a complex dance. We've seen this remarkable period of time where you would think all of the conversation would be about government today, change of administration, the cacophony of what's happening in Washington and in other capitals around the world. And yet the business, business has been kind of a through line in this story, including this recent remarkable moment where businesses pulled back their political contributions yeah. and said, we're going to hit the pause button on that. We haven't seen this through. We don't know how it's going to play out. But I think it's time for the business to step back and say, what is the right balance act? And where do we play a role? And where do we, what does that look like? But also, what do we need to do to make sure that we're supporting the health of the commons and democracies and local entities in a way that there is in fact a, a real calibration of power and, 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 and a true dialogue between private endearment and public benefit. Yeah, in the book, you, you talk about the relationship that CEOs and executives have and need to have with various stakeholder groups. One of those clearly is employees. And I wanna go deeper on kind of the voice of the employee to restore trust in business. In your book, you use the example of Levi Strauss's CEO, Chip Berg, and how Levi employs values to keep the company on the cutting edge of innovation. Tell us a bit more about that. It's been an interesting story that I started to follow when I was back at the Ford Foundation in the, in the 1990s. And at the time, Bob Haas was the CEO of mm -hmm. Levi Strauss, and he was, mm -hmm. he was on the board of, of the Ford Foundation. And he was among a, a handful of CEOs, including Henry Schack from Cummins and the CEO of Reuters and, and David Kearns from Xerox. And they started saying, why don't why doesn't the Ford Foundation talk more about private sector in the business in the business community? You know, where does it belong in the pursuits of economic development and equality, the things the Ford Foundation has always worked on? And what we learned then, we kind of dove into this question. What we learned is, of course, that so much attention in this social sector was on the, the contributions, the donations, and the philanthropy. And of course, that is not where business has real agency. 
It's the design of the business, what it's designed to do. It's the impact of its operations and its supply chain. It's the intentions it sets when it's employing people and the, the kind of social contract that it builds with its employees and its contractors, I have to say today. Mm -hmm. And those questions are where the real, that's the real zeitgeist. And that's where the, where, where the private sector has true leverage. It's not about philanthropy or investing on the outside. It's about what are you investing in inside? And that's a conversation at Levi Strauss that's been going on for as long as I've, I've followed it. Today, you know, fast forward to Chip Berg's remarkable tenure there and a turnaround of the company and bringing it back to kind of its position as a, as a leader, both certainly in social innovation, but also in product development and coming through a remarkably complicated time. But what we've seen at Levi is they've continued to listen to employees and invest in both culture and innovation. And so I tell the story of one of their, their many remarkable employees who actually led the innovation around removing chemicals from the process of distressing genes using laser, lasers instead and really driving a whole new kind of cycle of innovation on the production cycle. That's where a company like Levi Strauss has real leverage. That's where it embeds in its thinking, its product design and organization and implementation and distribution. All of those pr principles of environmental values and social values that we would like to attach to business, it has to be done through the actual design of the product itself. And I think Chip Berg has taken the company through a rough period. It's in another rough one now because of COVID, of course. But he has, he's also demonstrated real leadership in aligning his voice with things that employees care deeply about, like guns, for example. Mm -hmm. That's where he's played real leadership. So it's an interesting case example of a company that, that naturally and intentionally thinks about, about the outside and the inside of the firm and uses employees as an important bridge between these two worlds. Yeah, well, just a follow-up, because I think I do think it, they're an intriguing company, an intriguing company because of the way they've dealt with societal issues in two realms. On one hand, something very close to the business, right, in terms of sustainable cotton becomes very core to who they are and what they do. And then taking what some would say is a political position on, on guns, what becomes the trigger, the logic for moving from the space in which it is totally around your product to maybe it's totally about various audiences or customer sets or directionally? How, how best does a company discern what to do in that more political space? Well, clearly the product stuff is, that's, that's you know, that's table stakes today. Companies can't get away without looking at, at the, the actual consequences of their product. When it gets to this other sphere, I think it's very individual, but I think, and Chipberg is one who's been willing to use his voice and obviously he's, he's passionate about gun control himself and has taken some real risks in that domain as many executives have. But we've been seeing now for, well, it's certainly ramped up at the beginning of the Trump administration, but was already evident before, a new era where employee, where CEOs have been willing to use their voice on remarkably complicated questions. Mark Benioff at Salesforce comes to mind and the, the battle he undertook in 
Carolinas and, and in Indiana around access to bathrooms for transgender people. You know, I mean, talk about an issue that yeah. most executives would not want to necessarily step out on. And yet the, you know, the other example that comes to mind is early on in the Trump administration, after the Muslim ban, the, you know, yeah. the ban on visas for uh, majority Muslim countries was implemented, and a host of CEOs, over 100 CEOs signed on, mostly from biotech and the tech industries, to essentially say, this isn't work for us. You're now stepping in a domain that affects our ability to execute business and to hire and train the people that we know are critical to our success. And you know, that cut close to the skin. In both of these examples, that one's a little closer but even, in, you know, we know that immigration is also a volatile issue in this country. I think, I think these individuals are always more comfortable if it sits within the domain of something that they can tie back to the business. Mm -hmm. But we're seeing them move out because of this interesting conversation with their employees. Mm -hmm. It's about attracting and retaining talent. And that's about the values of the enterprise. And those values bleed outside of these bread and butter issues into the kind of social context in which the business operates. And we're seeing this play out. It, it creates remarkable controversy and risk, mm -hmm. but it also is a, it, the, the bar has moved, I guess yeah. is what I would say. And I don't think it'll come back. Yeah, well said. Judy, and, and, and the, the employee part of this is outlined so nicely in chapter four of your book. And I, I wanna ask another follow on if I can and then dig in a little bit to the rules. So my impression on, on some of this uh, stakeholder activism for companies is that it's easier for some companies than others. In other words, Levi, Salesforce, it's possible they have, from an employee standpoint, sort of a more homogenous viewpoint among their employees on certain issues than, uh, I worked at GE, I'll give you an example. Uh, we were one of the first companies to provide domestic partner benefits in, in the U.S. going back a few years. We thought it was a great initiative from corporate, and we got substantial pushback from unionized workers, non-unionized as well, in some parts of the country that had a more conservative view of this issue. Yep. So how do you reconcile that when you get into complex global companies, to Mike's question, what is an issue we want to take on? And, and you know, what do you say to those companies who say we have multiple stakeholders, even among our employees themselves? Yeah, I, you know, I don't think it's clear lines. Clearly, companies that have big brands are more likely to take these steps often because you get this kind of kind of dance between employees and also consumers. And the brands like Levi like Nike that have some edge to them. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like it's built into their brand. You see them willing, Levi, Levi, going back to Levi, Levi, as you probably remember well, since you guys work in the in this world of communications, you remember that Levi Strauss took an early position on being transparent and engaged on, on HIV AIDS. Yep. Way before any other company would have touched that in the public sphere. And it was it was possible because there it worked with their brand in essence. Yes. Mm -hmm. So I think we've seen the employee piece of this emerge more strongly in the last decade. But I think these things tend to kind of confound one another and maybe create more space for some of these larger branded companies. Mm -hmm. A company like GE that's you know part brand but a lot of B two B. 
as well are more are naturally more complex and they naturally are going to have a more you know being less consumer facing means that they they probably also are not as it's, it may not be as necessary to step in so but i believe also that companies naturally lend they kind of lean into tolerance higher tolerance because they need to create a big tent they need to make a place where it's safe for everyone to come to work and to communicate and in some respects they are natural that's plays an important role in our country as well that they 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 weave the conversation they've been enabling as we've seen now for a long time you know employee kind of special interest groups employee resource groups that are based in race and identity and gender mm-hmm. and you know areas of concern or issues because because they know they need to create the space for that kind of conversation inside to create a healthy a healthy organization so I, you know, I think it's a, I think it's volatile. I think it's complicated. I think it has to be authentic, and that means it has to be authentic to the leader as well. Exactly, exactly. So let's dig into the the six rules. And by the way, there, for for our listeners, there's a great chart in the first part of this book that summarizes the rules. And uh, I I, I want to pick one and go into a little depth. Rule number one with the new rule is reputation, trust, and other intangibles drive business value. This is music to Mike and my ears. <laughs> this is certainly something we've talked a lot about on The Crux. And it's a lot of, uh, it, it, of course, is the focus of what a, our, our listeners deal with, reputation, trust, and other intangibles. I saw something the other day. I might get the number wrong, Judy, but it's directionally correct, that the true value of companies today is about 70% intangible assets, which is what rule number one deals with, versus tangible assets such as factories and machinery and that kind of thing. And that flip happened really fast. And and going from tangible to intangible assets around the value of these companies, why has this happened? Well, you may be low. I've seen 80 and 85%, but of course it's intangible. So how do we know for sure? Right? <laughs> That's kind of your point. Why has it happened? You know, I don't know if it's happened quickly or not. It's been happening over a long period of time, I believe, although I think we've become more conscious of it, certainly in the last decade. But, you know, think back to the time when, you know, GM was at the top of the, you know, stock stock tables here. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was all bricks and mortar and, yeah. and, uh, and then kind of the hard kind of measurable costs of employment as opposed to the ones that feel more ephemeral but and intangible, but in fact are the core of real value when you when as the economy has evolved from kind of a hard asset manufacturing economy to one that is more about technology, it's about IP mm-hmm. and, and and the talent that enables these kinds of investments and for these assets to be actually deemed valuable. And that talent walks out the door every day. So yeah. that immediately starts putting the focus on attracting and retaining that talent and ensuring that you're getting the best out of that investment. It naturally puts the attention in this global world in which we're operating on reputation and trust. I mean, trust is you know deemed one of the most important assets of a firm. And this is, you know, consulting firms and leadership companies measure this kinds of thing. You know, I, I think it's a complicated domain, but I think if we look around, we realize how much that has become the story and the narrative, the corporation. And uh, so this, again, is music to our ears. 
Mike and I spend quite a bit of time, have spent in our lives advising CEOs, Judy, about this topic on the, the, the value of trust and, and the value of reputation. You've been doing it, obviously, for, for a long time. Are CEOs individually, I know it it's, it's varies from company to company. It seems to me, and this is, are the business schools and the CEOs who come out of them, do they understand this link between reputation, trust, and the the total value of the enterprise? Where are we on that continuum? You know, I think the business schools, because of the nature of the industry, because of our economy, think about how much of the U.S. economy is really finance. Yeah. You know, the largest employers in the big brand business schools and the big brand business schools that you and I could name are the largest business schools as well at the, at not at, not as undergraduate institutions, but as, as an MBA yep. uh, at, the, at the master's degree level. And they train people to a very extensive degree for jobs in finance and in strategy and consulting and, and professional services. So you can talk about what they advise, but they're not training people who walk into the C-suite. You know, they're not, they're talking about people that are kind of removed from that. And I believe more of this is learned on the job. Yes. Kind yeah. of nature of walking into a, the importance of getting your culture right is a, is a growing conversation today as well. And so I think the business schools have got a ways to catch up here. They all, you know, business schools naturally lag. We can talk more about that. But I, I think that, you know, it's, well, it's playing out. It's playing out in real time. Yeah. You know, I had a, I, I, uh, I used to work at GE with Jeff Immelt as the CEO, when he was the CEO for 13 years, I was with him and he has a book out and he, he was talking about the things he didn't know when he became, he became CEO of GE at 44 mm-hmm. and he's an HBS, you know, Harvard Business School graduate. And he grew up and went to school in a time, Judy, when you know, there was a 50 mile an hour tailwind in the economy, right? And and yep. and they didn't have to deal with these kinds of issues. And certainly wasn't uh, obviously social media and other things that in employee activism that drive it. So I think your observation is spot on. You know, and- he also, he, you know, as CEO, and this is probably something that had started under Jack Welsh, but I think that Jim, if I'm all continued, they would take these top kind of top flight, top moving executives and put them on a problem Mm -hmm. uh, across uh, across sectors of the business and across functions. And I remember the story of them having sent, uh, you know, a cadre of senior executives, I think it was to Japan, and they came back saying, we're missing a piece of the puzzle here. We need to get more intentional about this kind of blurry line between where we're defining the impact of the business and what's being realized by those who sit outside the business. And, yeah. and that was actually a change. I believe that was a real moment where, where Jeff kind of experienced it through the experience of these, these uh, you know, lieutenants that they were you know, cultivating for uh, more responsibility in the firm, and it became a it became a moment of change inside the company. Yeah, and and Judy, actually, I was part of that team. No way! <laughs> did I get it even vaguely right? Yes, you did completely. We had missed some social expectations changes in Japan, and they sent about two dozen of us to figure it out, and and you know, spent a month talking to a lot of people in Japan. Well, you should and, write a book about that. I <laughs> So Judy, going on to, to another rule 
in in your in your list of six, you state that corporate responsibility is defined far outside the business gates. Who gets to define corporate responsibility if it's not the business itself? In the book, you also use, and I'm very interested in the example because I lived it a little bit at Cargill, which is the story of palm oil to illustrate the point. You know, I don't know that business, again, has ever defined its responsibilities by itself. When I, when I first started kind of learning some of the ropes around this, the mantra was, you know, for the responsibility of the business is, you know, create jobs and pay your taxes. And as I now say, you know, neither of those are guaranteed today, mm-hmm. right? I mean, uh-huh. a, a significant share of jobs higher in some industries than the others are actually put outside on contracts that don't have the same rights and, and kind of, you know, don't carry the same sight line of the, of the company. And I think that's an area that's going to change fairly rapidly in the next years. You know, business is nothing, but it has so many choices to make. It has real agency on issues of, of real consequence. And it's certainly true when we deal with the kind of human capital piece of this, we're seeing that play out in real time. But it's, it's equally true through the complex supply chain, touching all of the myriad ways in which business influences environmental you know, habits, practices, protocols on the ground. You take a company like Pepsi, I think they touch, I don't know if it's 10,000 or 20,000 potato farmers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Think about it. You know? wow. So where are you going to engage? If you're an NGO and you care about the quality of soil, water, air, you know, um, you know, species that are at risk, ecosystems, fisheries, where are you going to engage? Yeah. Are you going to try to, you know, tackle it through individual countries and laws? Sure, you can't avoid that. That has to be part of the puzzle. Or, but you're also going to work at the pre-competitive level, diagnose the system, figure out who has the biggest brand at risk, match that with the biggest producer, the B2B producer who's serving that brand, and negotiate the kind of long-term solution that is going to work for those businesses who are most at risk, who have the most to risk if they in fact hit a wall, but who also have the most to gain by raising the bar. We've seen this play out. Palm oil is a great example of it. Palm oil, how do you get your handle on this? And yet it's a massive commodity. That's why you know, Cargill is in the business because they trade commodities. You know, it touches hundreds of products that we don't even know it's a part of. And yet it's a, con- a significant contributor of deforestation. So the NGOs are all over the question of palm oil and how do you get a handle on it? You can't deal with it through, you know, nameless farmers all over Indonesia. You're not going to get around it through, you know, the, the, the country itself, which has economic interests at stake and thinks palm oil is a great way to put people to work you're gonna to have to get at that through another mechanism. And the private sector ends up being that mechanism. And that story is being told in fisheries, it's being told in palm oil, it's being, it's being told through the kind of role that a McDonald's is playing today mm-hmm. where they become mm-hmm. the organizer for mm-hmm. trying to get the handle around uh, beef production. Talk about mm-hmm. a messy complex wow. yeah. you know, supply chain. Yeah. So we see it over and over again. It's been happening for a long time now and the NGOs really, they're, they're defining the space. It is not within the control of the corporation and the smart ones get on the, can I get on the bandwagon? 
Yeah, well, in fact, Jason Clay at uh, World Wildlife Fund for a long time was kind of the great articulator of all of this. And I can remember when I joined Cargill, uh, he had given a presentation the summer before at Oxford. It was kind of a TED Talk. And, and, and he had this chart and it was like the, the, the nine commodities that have the biggest impact on the environment and who actually, what are the companies that actually source this? And then what are the big brands that, that buy their product from those sourcers? And lucky me as a new CCO, you know, six of those nine categories, Cargill was a prominent player in. So I became friends with Jason very quickly. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great example. And, uh, and Cargill's done some interesting work. I mean, they actually, not to keep on going back to Levi Strauss, but you guys raised Levi to keep on coming back up this morning. But, you know, they, Levi Strauss, through a network that we run in the Business and Society program, Michael Cabori, who was then at Levi Strauss, who's now at Starbucks, met another colleague at, at Cargill, and they actually ended up flirting with, and I think creating a market in um, sustainable cotton, you know, yeah. so where they actually were looking at that as a tradable commodity, like how would we actually play in the big leagues? Yeah. with organic cotton. And, uh, you know, it plays into the bigger organizing that's taking place in that industry and around that massive commodity. Yeah. In fact, Cargill was a big player in that. And one of the companies that was engaged with us when I was there was Patagonia. Another great company. Yeah. <laughs> they now, are pretty the, shrunk, I like, like to say. Pretty shrunk. <laughs> Since we did business school, should we jump ahead? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, I was going to ask one one other oh, ahead, type of question. Right. Yeah. Yep. And that question really is, we've talked about supply chains and, you know, we talked about positioning on issues. The other thing that is, is interesting and curious to me is the way in which now there are an increasing number of investors that are more curious and, and, and want more information associated with ESG performance. You know, when some years ago, when I first went to work for a Fortune 500 company as the chief communications officer, it was far in the distance and there was probably low, probably not even low single digit interest of real investors in kind of social investing. And is it just my perception, but it seems like this now is a bigger thing. I mean, it's, it's also instructive to note that he's, he's now since left the Nature Conservancy, but uh, Mark Tursik, who had been its leader, actually came out of that world of kind of looking at environmental investing for Goldman Sachs. Is, are we gonna see that as a continuing trend? I think we are, but I think it's a conundrum. You know, investors, investors come in lots of shapes and sizes, and there is a massive industry of attracting, uh, you know, assets, you know, asset management measures its, its value by how many assets they have in their management. And so um, there is a tendency to want to measure, find simplistic ways of measuring and making comparisons between and among firms so that they can claim that we are supporting your values if you invest in XYZ fund and grow their own assets under management. And I don't think that's necessarily a prescription for better outcomes or better decision-making inside business. I'll quote Jerry Muller, the, the, um, the author of a book called Tyranny of Metrics. He says, metrics lose their meaning when used to reward or punish performance 
rather than to diagnose and analyze. <laughs> it takes me back inside the firm. That's where the real agency is. Yeah. And when you're inside the company, you need measures like employee engagement, not mm -hmm. because you want to say you're the best place to work, because you want information that's going to help mm -hmm. you understand, are my employees showing up equipped to work? Do they understand what the job is? Are they engaged? Do they want to be here? And then enough information to kind of drill down in and fix it if it's not working, yeah. to get interested in the problem, as opposed to, there are some things that lend themselves to simplistic comparisons. Carbon emissions is probably yeah. one of those, and we're going to see more of that. You know, what percentage of your board, you know, gender and race, some of those things are easy, but that doesn't give you a window into the real complexity of making the changes within. Yeah. And so I think it's a complicated domain. Maybe it can't hurt, it, it, except that you guys work with comps guys. You know how much time they spend responding to all of those myriad surveys. You know, <laughs> the idea that somehow it's about measurement, I actually don't think it is. I think it's about decision-making and the, the kind of rules of the road that drive change within. I think that's where the real agency is. Terrific. Well, a couple more questions, Judy. And, and I want to ask, in an interview with Alan Murray from Fortune, who recent guest uh, on, on The Crux, and by the way, that's, that interview is what put me onto your book. So, so congratulations, right. Alan. You do sell books. Um, <laughs> it is great. <laughs> you said there are three significant pieces of unfinished business. You called them blind spots that are holding back companies, holding companies back from making progress on their stakeholder intentions. Now you may find this hard to believe a guy from GE, but I was glad to see that one of them was corporate taxes mm -hmm. and the shelters that have been used to reduce effective tax rates. My view, Judy, and, and it's not the question, I guess it's an assertion by me, is that some of these issues are easier for companies than others. Yeah. Right. And and uh, jumping in or, or, or taking a position. So let's jump into taxes. Given the national debt, which I think for the first time is going to exceed the total size of the economy uh, soon, and the many social needs in our country and, and really physical needs in our country, should business right now be out there supporting an increase in the corporate tax rate, maybe even just back to pre-Trump levels? No. <laughs> I'll tell you what they should be doing, on the other hand. So the okay. corporate tax, what, what happened under the corporate tax bill that passed, uh, it may have been the only accomplishment, you know, that corporations absolutely were unified behind in the Trump administration, it was a reduction of the corporate tax rate from 36%. This is a federal corporate tax rate, 36% down to 24%. Yep. The effective tax rate, the rate actually being paid at the time, was something like 9%. Yes. A 36 per tax, all that does is invite everybody to do whatever they can to avoid paying it. 24% is a negotiated rate. It's closer to what probably not what, you know, it's still going to be a far sight from what companies actually pay. But you don't get more taxes by raising the tax rate. You get more taxes by adhering to the tax rate that's actually imposed and creating a level playing field that applies as well to service industry as it does to manufacturing. Mm -hmm. You get rid of those myriad kind of unintended consequences of tax law that's carved out specific relationships with specific companies and industries that allow them to get an unfair advantage. 
that's what we need to be addressing. And the fact that that didn't happen at the same time as we reduced the tax rate from 36 down to 24 is a problem. And the other problem is the tendency, and GE has been pretty good at this. Uh, I'll also have to call out a, one of my favorite companies, Microsoft, on this. You mm-hmm. know, Microsoft came out with these remarkable commitments on climate last January. And then a few months later, an enterprising journalist working for ProPublica landed a long form investigative piece about Microsoft parking its intellectual property in Puerto Rico to avoid taxes. Mm -hmm. These two things don't, you can't invent, you can't make these statements about the importance of democracy and then then messing around with the very rule of law that, you know, makes this all possible. And this is a a true blind spot here. Yeah, here, here, I completely agree. Another blind spot that you mentioned to, to Alan was executive pay. And you argue that the way top managers are paid is antithetical to stakeholder purpose and the sentiment expressed by the business roundtable. Judy, can, can you explain what you mean by that? Sure. We started mucking around in CEO pay many years ago when we were working on curbing short-termism in, uh, in business and capital markets kind of coming out of the debacle of Enron. We started looking at what were the kind of, what was the underbelly of what happened there. The conference board had done some wonderful work that we started collaborating with them on. And it took us to CEO pay in the sense we thought if we could just make it longer term, that should resolve the problem. Mm-hmm. But of course, it, it didn't and it hasn't. And a, a big piece of that is the design of CEO pay. CEO pay is increasingly focused on stock price. Total shareholder return, which is the you know, adding up of dividends plus share buybacks, which are negotiated by the firm, are often incentivized by this pay package. You know, that becomes the center of the of the pay for the chief executive and maybe the leadership team and some board members, maybe. And when that happens, it doesn't matter if you try to say it's long term or you actually make it long term, as GE has, for example. Mm-hmm it still rebounds to short-term thinking because you wake up in the morning thinking about the stock price, you go to bed thinking about the stock price and all of the incentives and what you drive down through the system are often focused on that. And we've seen the consequences of that at Boeing. We've seen the consequences at Wells Fargo. There are many other examples that we could hold up that are, are should be kind of a lessons to for, for moving past this. So, the roundtable, the business roundtable, when they came out, said basically businesses serve many purposes. They call them stakeholders. I don't particularly like that language. Yeah, nor do I. Yeah. Speak to the real nuance of what you're trying to balance and who's most important in, in, in achieving that. It treats employees like they're outside the gate as opposed to your most important allies here. And so, but by by stating that, they created kind of a revolution in discussion here about the purpose of the corporation. It's been a healthy one, and it is bringing us back to CEO pay that if you really are saying that, and if the CEO's job today is leading a community, then why have we made the stock price the center of the incentive system? Right. These two, they, they just won't resolve. Yeah. So it takes me, you know, it might just kind of, end with this quote by uh, Jeff Weiner, uh, who was the you know, very inquisitive and thoughtful leader of LinkedIn uh, when it was sold to Microsoft and then stayed on for a number of years, but stepped down from the company a year or so ago. And he says, he talked about the pursuit of talent, technology, and trust. He says, 
what are we trying to accomplish and how are we going to accomplish it? These are straight, it's a straightforward question, but it's incredibly complicated in execution. And authenticity, he said, which has got to be the heart of communications, right? Hmm. Authenticity is about keeping your promises. It is about actions, not words. And I think that takes us right to this question of what are we paying the CEO to do? What is the social contract with the host communities? What is our social contract with our employees? And what are the pieces that are hard to get to that are not in our short-term interest, but that have to be exposed and explored in order to move us all forward? We need business at the table in, in so many important ways. Exactly. And it yeah. takes well, courage on the yeah. part of CEOs too, when they've got it, particularly if they've got an activist in the house, you know, that kind of thing who are more short-term focused. It takes real courage uh, on their part. And I, I, I'm with you on the BRT. I thought it was directional, but important. And so this discussion has been great. I, and I, I want to say uh, for the communicators listening, this book is really important because Judy has laid out here a real roadmap for expectations. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not something that uh, I think is going to go back. I think there are still some CEOs and other executives who think we'll go back to the days of the roaring 90s or how business was conducted in that time. And, I, and so for the communicators listening, I'm, I'm putting a must-buy uh, sticker on this book for all of you. <laughs> now, now, Judy, I have, I have one last question, a short question. And that is, so as you look at business's role in society going forward, are you optimistic? Totally optimistic. I think we're in a, for some reason, pregnant moment comes to mind. I'm not sure why that word feels right one right now. But, you know, this is a time, it's a generative moment, and it's complicated, and it's, it's remarkable as we look back over these last months, even though the attention's been on government and Washington and beyond, business has been on the front page throughout this entire period of time. People, relatively speaking, have more trust in the private sector than they do in government, although it's not a great score still, but it's... Uh, expectations are there, the employee expectations are growing and real, and they have the tools to be heard. And the best leaders know that this is what's, you can't, you know, quote on my wall, I cannot have a successful business in a failed society. And I don't want to try to sound too dramatic here, but I think we're having a real conversation about the success of our own society, and business has to be part of that conversation. Thank you, Judy. The book is The Six New Rules of Business Creating Real Value in a Changing World. Chris, our grad student editor, will post a link to the book on the Crux's website. Thank you again, Judy. Thank you both so much. I enjoyed it. Gary, Mike, thanks. Thank you, Judy. Thanks for listening to The Crux and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter. And you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.